Hi, we're the Padillas. I'm Jason. I'm Nathan. I'm Tanya. And we have Romans 10. And so what we thought we'd like to do is give you a view of Romans 10 as our pets heard us talk about it. And so first we're going to start with Daisy. Well, I heard the Padillas talking about Romans 10, and this is what I learned from them. God has made it very simple for all people to come to know him. All you have to do is make it known to others that you believe Jesus is Lord and you believe that God raised him from the dead. With that being said, let us not forget to continually pray for our Jewish friends who have not come to know Jesus as their Savior yet. Just as Paul's heart ached for them, ours should also. Awesome, Dave. Thank you. Next up, we're going to have waffles. Waffles, what did you learn about Romans 10 from the Padillas? I learned about Romans 10 from the Padillas that it is very easy for everybody to get saved. You do not need to have any exceptions, like you need to be of Jewish lineage, or you need to do this or that. Anybody can get saved by just believing in God that he died on the cross and he rose three days later. Awesome. Thank you, Waffles. And also, uh, the pets mentioned that in Romans 10, 17, so then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God, and wanted to understand more about what that meant. And so what we do as a family, we typically just kind of scrunch that verse together, that if you want to have faith, you need to understand the Word of God, that our belief system is based upon the Word of God. And as we understand the Word of God better, our faith grows. So that's it from Romans 10. We just wanted to say thank you for uh, listening to us today. And just like Jesus, remember, your pets hear and see everything you do. Bye. Ah, that blesses my heart. Very good. I always knew animals could talk. Yeah. But we are in uh, Romans chapter 10 this morning. I've been missing those videos. Good to have them once again. If you think back, we spent the first, well, let's pray first. Father, uh, we love you. And the only reason we love you, Lord, is that you first loved us. That you have called us, that you have uh, wooed us unto yourself, Father. And Lord, we thank you for giving us that faith to believe in your dear son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, we come here this morning to hear from you, not from the opinions of man. That does us no good. We want to hear the truths of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. We want to hear from you, Lord, because it's your word that sustains us. It's your word that undergirds us. It's your word that establishes us, Father, to walk in faith. And Holy Spirit, we need you to do those things. So we invite you here to teach us, Father God. May you have your way in us. And it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. So we've spent the first eight chapters building the incredible doctrinal portion of the book of Romans. Now chapter 9 through 11 is basically an excursus. Paul begins to speak about Israel. And we've been talking about God's election. 
his predestination, his foreknowing us, his calling to us and telling us nothing can separate us from his great love. That's security, and we're thankful for those things. But then Paul has a question, and that question arises. As the Padilla said, what about Israel? Lord, we know that you are covenant-keeping God, and you do nothing except by covenant. And Paul has taught us, and your scripture tells us, that you made a covenant with Israel. And if you don't keep your covenant with Israel, then the Gentiles are in limbo. And God says, he thunders back, of course I keep my covenant. And Paul has been explaining those things to us in chapter 9. He is a covenant-keeping God. And so he begins to talk about in chapter 10 how he will restore Israel. Now, we haven't seen that yet. And as we are in these last days, God will begin to reveal those things to us. But right now, we find ourselves in the middle of this section in chapter 10. Paul, writing to the Romans back in chapter 9, verse 30, he says this. What shall we say then that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to that righteousness, even the righteousness of faith, while Israel sought it, speaking of righteousness, by trying to fulfill the law? Of course, they would stumble. Of course, anyone who tries to fulfill the law will stumble. He goes on to say in verse 31 of chapter 9, but Israel pursuing the law of righteousness has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. For they stumbled at the stumbling stone as it is written, behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. And whoever believes on him, speaking of Jesus Christ, will not be put to shame. He quotes Isaiah chapter 8, verse 14 there. Paul tells us all of these things the prophets have spoken has come to pass in the person of Jesus Christ. So verse 1 of chapter 10, Paul says, Brethren, my heart's desire And prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. Just look at Paul's heart for a minute. His brethren, think about it, has persecuted him. The Judaizers would follow him from city to city, lying, persecuting him, doing all of those things. And Paul still says, my heart's desire and prayer. At the beginning of service, we pray. When I come up here, before I begin to look into the passage, I pray. Hopefully, before every meal, we pray. And that's just praying. And you know, when we pray, especially when people are around, we try to be an open book, but not that much open. But prayer is something totally different. 
Prayer is when you can get in a room by yourself in your prayer closet and you begin to tell the Lord what's your burden. And it's just you and the Lord. And you can be open. David, will you give me a bottle of water? And you can be open, thank you, with him. You don't have to worry about the Lord telling on you. I tell people this all the time. I love my wife, but I don't tell her everything. I love the Lord because after I tell him everything, he's the Lord still. He looks at me the same way, no matter how much she loves me. She wouldn't look at me the same way. So I can tell the Lord, I can share my heart with the Lord. Lord, I'm struggling with this. I'm having a hard time with this. Give me grace to handle this. And I'm open. I hold nothing back with my Savior. And that's what Paul is doing here. That's the difference between praying and prayer. And and the Holy Spirit is saying, I want you to see the heart of Paul. Paul is an open book. And he says, my heart desire and prayer is my brethren for God, for Israel, is that they may be saved. And that's the difference between praying and prayer. What is you guys' heart's desire this morning? What is your burden that we carry, that you carry to the Lord consistently? We should have those. He says in verse 2, for I bear them witness. I can testify on their behalf that they have a zeal for God. But then Paul says, but not according to knowledge. Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 6, we, for we are the circumcision. You can, you can just catch the pride as Paul reads this scripture. It says these words, who worship God in spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Paul says, though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so circumcise the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Paul says, I was zealous. I was a member of the Sanhedrin. I was at the center of the religious life in Israel. Yes, the Jew, they have zeal. You know, you might know people who are very religious, but they're not saved. We see people of other religions who are zealous. Sometimes we look at their commitment and say, in some ways, they have a more of commitment than I do to Christ. Some go door to door on a regular basis. Some blow themselves up. Some fly planes into buildings without the real God or the real paradise. What level of commitment do we have to Jesus Christ this morning? I tell the leadership team all the time, 
We can do a lot of things if we don't let convenience get in the way. That's our problem in the West. If it's convenient, I can do it. I might, perhaps I might do it. If I can ever get in that sweet spot where nothing is going on, I don't need to do this, I don't need to do that, right there is where my ministry lives. Hmm. It should not be. We're here for Jesus Christ and his will to be done. We should be zealous for Christ according to knowledge. Paul says in verse 3, speaking of the Jew, for they being ignorant and really for they having not responded to God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, that's trouble, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. So they're ignorant about God's righteousness. Paul isn't saying that they can't understand God's righteousness. They knew and they know that God is a holy God that God is a just God, that God is a righteous God. But how do we get to him? That's what Paul is speaking of. Once again, in chapter 9, verse 31, he says this, but Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained, has not lived up to the law of righteousness. The righteousness of God here implies of the dynamic activity of God, whereby he brings people to himself into a right relationship with himself. And the only way we can do that is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. It's a justifying, it's the justifying activity of God manifested in the person of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel that we should be proclaiming. Remember, he said in uh, Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 22, after we had been in that dark, dull cave for three chapters, uh, speaking of how man, there's nothing good in him. That his, when he speaks, his mouth speaks the poison of asp, and his tongue, there's nothing good under his tongue, and his thoughts, there's nothing good with his thoughts, and we are doomed in our transgressions and sin. And then the light of the glorious gospel shines in chapter three, verse 21. And he says, but now the righteousness of God, thank God he goes on to say, apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed, this blows me away, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. They were even speaking of that righteousness in the Old Testament is revealed being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God. You mean I can have God's righteousness? That's what he's saying, yes. He goes on to say, through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe. That's the righteousness. So righteousness comes through faith in the God-man, Jesus Christ. He says, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness. Now, of course, seeking your own righteousness brings forth self-righteousness. And pride skips right along with that. Even in 
evangelicals, people can be self-righteous. And that is as much of an act of sin and an act of the flesh as any other sin. It produces and brings forth legalism. And then you become Pharisaic and you become judgmental and you find yourself not extending grace to your brothers and sisters. Paul says this, if you want to see everyone through the eyes of grace, he says this in Galatians 2.21, I do not set aside the grace of God. We shouldn't. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. I should see everyone through the eyes of grace. I should be more tough, more firm with myself than anyone else. If we really understood grace, we wouldn't be going around trying to establish our own righteousness. We wouldn't be going outside of, outside of what Christ has done, which we could never improve on. He says, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted, have not become subordinate to the righteousness of God. That's the only righteousness we have a chance to attain to. He says, for Christ is the end of the law. And tell us, Christ brings the law the law's error to an end. That's what that scripture says right there. Christ is the fulfillment of the law. When Jesus Christ touched down, he says, I haven't come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill it because you guys can't fulfill it. I can't fulfill it. You need someone who can handle this. He never sinned. It blows me away in word, thought, or deed. That's why he could fulfill it. Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 through 9, Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish. I like the word dung. That I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Jesus Christ, in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Paul is speaking of what he had experienced here. This is not foreign to him, what he's seen in his brethren, because he, he's had the same struggle. That's what he's looking at. He had the same zeal. And he knows their commitment to God. And he understands. And what we have to understand is what the Jews have stumbled over is not a false doctrine. That would be one thing. They were committed to Moses. They were committed to the Pentateuch. They were committed to the prophets. They had the ordinances Paul said, and yet and still they stumbled over Jesus Christ because they were trying to fulfill the law. It says, seeking to establish 
their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. Bear with me. I want to read you something this morning. One of my classes, I had to read this book, and I'm glad I had to read it because it's a great book by uh, Michael Brown. Our hands are stained with blood. So bear with me. Rabbi Akiva, one of the most one of the most famous sages of the Talmud, died a martyr's death in the year 135 A.D. He had made the tragic error of believing that a powerful Jewish general, who's, who rose up against Rome, was actually the Messiah. But the Romans, Roman armies prevailed. The government quickly clamped down on the Jews, severely restricting their religious liberty. When the Romans banned the public teaching of the law, Akiva refused to comply. He continued to teach in public, not even stopping while in prison. Finally, the day for his torture and death arrived. At the sadistic crowds looked on with glee, the executioner began to comb Akiva's 90-year-old flesh with iron combs. But Akiva's mind was on something else. The time had come to recite the Shema, the confession of faith outlawed by Rome, beginning with the words, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So he recited it and smiled. The Roman officer called out, O man, art thou a sorcerer, or dost thou mock at thou suffering, that thou smilest in the midst of thou pains? Neither, replied Akiva, but all my life, when I said the words, thou shalt love the Lord thou God with all thy heart and soul and might, I was saddened, for I thought, when shall I be able to fulfill the command? I have loved God with all my heart and with all my possession, but how do I love him with all my soul? I was not assured. But now that I am giving my life and that the hour for saying the Shema has come and my resolution remains firm, should I not laugh? And as he spoke, his soul departed. This became the pattern for countless Jewish martyrs who would follow in Akiva's step. They died with the Shema, the Jewish confession of faith on their lips. Elkanan Wasserman was one of the greatest rabbis of Eastern Europe. In 1941, he met his death at the hands of the Nazi butchers. Rabbi Wasserman and a number of leading Jewish scholars were studying the Talmud together in the ghetto in Kovno, Lithuania, on July the 6th, 1941. Suddenly, a group of Lithuanians fascists broke into the room, firing their rifles and accusing the rabbis of trying to organize a revolt. These crazed soldiers lined up the rabbis and began to march them to their death when Rabbi Wasserman stopped and addressed those with him. It appears that in heaven they view us as righteous men, worthy to atone with our lives for the people of Israel. We must therefore immediately repent here and now, for the time is short and the ninth fourth is near. 
we must remember that we will in truth be those who sanctify God's name. Let us therefore go with heads erect. Let us, God forbid, have no unworthy thought, which like unfit intention in the case of a sacrifice rendered it invalid. We are now about to fulfill the greatest commandment, that of sanctifying the name. The fire which will destroy us is the flame of which the Jewish people will be rebuilt. Moments later, Rabbi Wasserman and his colleagues were gone, machine gunned to death, but his dying words lived on. The state of Israel was miraculously born out of the ashes of the Holocaust. One more, bear with me. The Shavet Shayim taught this. The world is not a place of happiness, for true joy is only in the heavens, and we are here to do the job assigned to us by the Creator. And he lived a life of sacrifice. Our sages, they say, that God's throne is not complete as long as the redemption has not yet come. So how can I sit on a comfortable, easy chair when I know that God sits, as it were, on a broken chair. He also believed in the mercy of the Lord, saying, if not for our good fortune that God has shown us the kindness of accepting our repentance, we would drown in the mud we have created in only a few years. Does this sound like the writings of an arrogant man? Some Christians think that the Talmud the foundation of the rabbi's teaching is a wicked and misleading. Actually, it consists of many books. They imagine that it is filled with horrible attacks on the New Testament and that every page smacks of Jewish arrogance and pride. But is this picture really true? Out of the Talmud's two and a half million words, hardly any of them mention Jesus or his followers. When Jesus apparently is referred to, the few references are negative in, in the extreme. This should not surprise us since the rabbis did not believe in him. And at times their beliefs were disparaged and ridiculed by Christian leaders. But to be perfectly honest, most of the rabbis missed him altogether. They built their own system without him. They ignored him more than they rejected him. Basically, the Talmud is not an anti-Christian series of book. It is more non-Christian than anti-Christian, more without Jesus than against Jesus. This should make us feel sad, not angry. One more thing, and I'll close with it. We must change our stereotype views about the Jewish religion. It is a law-based religion, meaning it finds sanctity in keeping God's commandment and believes that God's fullest revelation is found within Torah, the orthodox divine teaching. It is a religion emphasizing works, meaning it is based more on the deed than on the creed. It is a religion exalting intellectual proudness and study. And this is the main part. And it is a religion in which any, in many ways, tradition takes precedence over Scripture. Listen to this. But it is also a religion 
that makes constant references to the Hebrew Bible, that sees the Song of Solomon as a love song between God and Israel, that says that loving the Lord with heart, soul, and strength is the greatest of all commandments, and teaches the importance of repentance, ethics, and personal holiness, also emphasizing the mercy and forgiveness of God. In many ways, it is a beautiful religion, the greatest religion man has made, perhaps the loftiest effort by human beings to please God if it were in man's power to please him. I hope you caught that. No matter how much their zeal was toward God, no matter how much they sacrificed their bodies and for their love of God, there's only one way to the Father, and that is through the Son, Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul's heart broke for the Jewish people. And that's the mindset I want us to have as we finish this chapter. Verse 5, it says, Paul speaking, For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does those things shall live by them. Moses has said that the righteousness, righteousness was in keeping the law. It says in Leviticus 18.5, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. Isaiah says, All of our righteousness is like filthy rags. James 2 mentions the same idea. But the problem is, as we know, no man has ever lived by the law. No man had ever kept the law until Christ came on the scene. He says, the man who does those things shall live by them. Because the law, the first commandment, as we know, and the last commandment deals or dealt with the heart. People could say, I've never committed adultery. I've never stole. I've never committed murder. But the, but the first one of the commandment is Exodus 23. And the Lord says, you shall have no other gods before me. That knocks us all out of the way. We've put something ahead of Yahweh. He doesn't mean number one is Yahweh, number two is something else. He says, in my presence, in my view. Paul goes on to say this, the last commandment, you shall not covet. Paul says, when I read that commandment, it slew me. I realized I may have never committed adultery, but I've looked at another woman and lusted after. I've never stolen anything. Well, I have, so I can't tell that lie. <laughs> but my point is, if you haven't, in your mind, you, you, you've coveted after something. That's what Paul is saying. And then the end, I may never have committed murder, but I'll have been upset with someone so much that probably if I could have gotten away with it at that moment and at that time, I would have. And so Paul is saying, don't, don't get it twisted. The law is not literal, just only literal, it's spiritual. And that same spiritual law will slay you if you never physically did any of those things. That's why Jesus Christ had to come. The Jews couldn't wrap this around their hearts. 
For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. And he said, the man who does those things shall live by them. If you can keep the law perfectly, you will live. James chapter 2 verse 10 puts it this way. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he's guilty of all. He goes on to say in verse 6, but the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. It communicates to us like this. And, and he begins to challenge them in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 11 through 14. And it says this, if you obey the voice of the Lord, your God, to keep his commandments and his statutes, which are written in the book of the law. And if you turn to the Lord, your God, with all your heart and with all your soul, For this commandment, which I commend you today, the new King James says, is not too mysterious. The King James says, is not hidden. And that's a better word there. It's not hidden for you, nor is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend into heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it, nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. But the word is near you, like the Padilla said, says, in your mouth and in your heart, that you may do it. God never required anything of his people that they could not attain to, even in the Old Testament. Moses is saying just like they said, it's so simple. It's right there before us. And Paul picks up on that in the New Testament. He says in verse six, but the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. That is to bring Christ down from above. Now we're going to notice in Deuteronomy chapter 11, Paul uses the word Well, the prophet uses the word to bring the commandment down in Deuteronomy. But this passage, Paul quotes, he's speaking of the living word. He's speaking of Jesus Christ coming down. He says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. That is to bring Christ down from above, verse 7, or who will descend into the abyss, the deep. Deuteronomy says across the sea, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. Paul's point is the two greatest miracles relative to the Messiah is the incarnation and the resurrection. That's what he's speaking of here. It's never to be repeated. Nobody has to say, who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ from the dead. Verse 8 tells us, but what does it say? The word is near you. It's near you this morning. It's near you if someone's watching and does not know Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. In your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith which we preach. Salvation is not hidden. No human effort is involved. You don't have to go up anywhere or go down from anywhere. You hear 
Christians speak of all the time. I just don't understand the will of God. I don't know what his will is for me. I tell them, read your Bible. That's all we need to do. Read your Bible and listen to what God is saying to you. God will speak to you through his word. It's near you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. It's that close. It's so simple that a child can understand. I recall taking uh, Lydia and I taking the grandkids home when they were little, probably about eight, and not, eight or nine years of age, going back to Kansas. And I began to talk to Sissy about the Lord. Been on my heart, Justice is in the car, his, her brother. And I started going down the path of the gospel to them. And when I finished, you could have heard a pin drop in the car. And Sissy said, hey, Grandpa, I want to give my life to the Lord. And the first thing I, I did, being a pessimistic guy, I said, now, Sissy, are you sure you understand what I'm saying to you? Are you or do you know? I, I just don't want you to give your life to the Lord to please me, to make me happy. Do you know what I'm telling you? And she said, yeah, Grandpa. And I said, okay, let's pray. And we prayed, drove about 10 more miles, and Justice said, Sissy's not saved. <laughs> I said, stop, Justice. Yes, she is. No, she's not. Drove another 10 miles, and here comes Justice. Grandpa, I want to give my life to the Lord. I don't want to go to hell. <laughs> I said, well, you do need fire insurance, but this is a love relationship, Justice. God wants to bless you with his presence, not only here, but eternity. He has a, a great life for you. I don't know what it is, but if you give your life to the Lord, you'll never regret it. To this day, Sissy still gets on the bus and goes to church. Now, she's at the age of where she can drive now, so she's probably driving herself. What I'm trying to tell you, the gospel, and you guys know this, the gospel is simple. It's so simple. And I think the reason the Lord made it so simple if he would have made it sophisticated and you'd have to be an intellectual to know it, well, I wouldn't be up here. I wouldn't be in the kingdom. But it's so simple. The word is nigh you. It's in your heart. And when the Lord speaks to you and when he speaks to you truly, you know, you can have a conversation and people speak to you and it's, it's just hitting your flesh or it's hitting your intellect. And that's good and well. You can track with them. The good news is not like that. If you're attentive to it, if, you, if the Holy Spirit is drawing you to it, it goes past the intellect to the heart because that's where a person is saved at. It does no good to be up here and it never goes down to the heart. You're not saved if it's up here. And that's what the gospel will do if you open your heart to it. And that's what Paul is saying. I don't understand. And I want to say this. One, the problem also with the Jews, they not only had the Ten Commandments, those little ten laws. They had the moral law. They said it was 613 commandments. And not only did they try to keep those, 
it was 40, they amended so many of them, and it was 40 uh, amendments just on the Sabbath. If that's not a burden, what is? Carrying all of that along. Hey, I'll give you uh, an example. When Congress passes a law, if they ever did, but when they do pass a law, it's usually a hundred pages. Sometimes it's a thousand pages. And we know those guys don't even usually read it. Can you imagine trying to navigate these commandments? They would become a burden. And if you happen to do a few of them, once again, you would become prideful. And the Pharisees, many of them, wanted to follow the Lord, to do the right thing. But how could they? Because what they were doing, they were seeking their own righteousness. Paul, when, at, at, when he stands before the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 15, he gives a testimony about them. He says this in, in Acts 15, 10 through 11. Now, therefore, Peter, Peter finally stands up. And this, is about, this was about circumcision when they came to the agreement. Okay, you don't have to be circumcised. We're going to put this. This is the edict sort of speak. And Peter says this. Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they, the Gentiles. That's the way it is. That's the way it will always be. It's simple. So we pick up in verse 9. Paul says that if you confess with your mouth, homologeo, confess, say the same thing. I tell myself that a lot when I'm on my knees praying. Lord, you're right, and I'm wrong. I'm a sinner. I was wrong. No matter how this flesh tries to say, well, she shouldn't have did this, or they shouldn't have said that. When I finally drop to my knees, I homologeo. I speak the same thing. You're right and I'm wrong. That's the way it has to be. No matter how I try to slant it, the Holy Spirit says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart. Notice in verse 8, he speaks of in your heart. Here in verse 9, he'll say it again, in your heart. That God has raised him from the dead you will be saved. Verse 10, he says, for with the heart, one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. Hallelujah. Blaise Pascal says, and he was a Christian. I'm listening to one of his books, but this is the statement he made and he's true about this. The heart has reasons that the mind knows nothing of. The heart has reasons that the mind knows nothing of. That's why it's the heart, the deeper part of man, that we must believe in Christ. I believe man is made of a trinity, just like the Godhead, body, mind, and spirit. And there's a deeper part, once again, than the intellect. And that's where the word must get to. 
the deepest part of man. That's where God speaks to us. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 through 6 puts it this way. But even if our gospel is veiled, is hidden, it is hidden to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded. That's the issue. Who do not believe, that's where the, why their mind is blinded. Lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness. Let there be light. The same miracle when he spoke it into existence and it happened. There's a greater miracle what he says here. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's salvation. So in verse 8, Paul says, the word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. Verse 9, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart, you shall be saved. Then he says in verse 10, for with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Now it's interesting here. It's affirming by the way the lordship of Jesus Christ, literally. That's the idea in verse 9. He says, if you confess that Jesus is Lord, speaking of the lordship of Christ, it's not just about Jesus came and he birthed the church, but it's Jesus Christ Lord of your life. That's the question this morning. When we come to genuine faith, you have to have said that Jesus Christ is Lord. He's either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. You're either saved because he is Lord of all or you're not saved because he's not Lord of all. There's no in-betweens. I can't find that in Scripture. When you bow your knee and you say, Jesus, I'm your doulos. I'm your slave by choice. I'm your bond servant. Not my will anymore. I might have to struggle for a minute, but sooner or later, if I am who I say I am, if it took as if Jeremiah, when he says, when you seek him with all your heart, he will be found. If I did that, I have to surrender. And say he's Lord. If you haven't did that, you might be on shaky ground. That's what the scripture says. He's more and he should be more than fire insurance. He says, for with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Verse 11, for the scripture says, now it's interesting if you note this, He says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Verse 12, for there is no distinction between Jew and and Greek in regards to sin, in regards to the need of a savior, in regards to how one is saved. He says, for the same Lord over all 
is rich to all who call upon him. Verse 13, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Philippians chapter 2 says this, and being found in appearance as a man, speaking of Jesus Christ, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ, there it is, is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Here, he says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, think back all the way through chapter 9. Paul is emphasizing election. Paul is emphasizing predestination. He's emphasizing God choosing. God looked at Ishmael and chose Isaac. And then we said, oh, I can understand that because Isaac was was Sarah's son also. But then God says, let me tell you about this. What about Rebekah's two boys? Jacob and Esau, and Esau being the oldest, and Esau should have had all the blessings. And God says, no, 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 I'm going to choose Jacob. What do you think about that? And so he's getting this point to us. God chooses, he elects, he predestines, he foreknows from the foundation of the world. That's what he's saying. And then he comes to Israel, and he comes back to all of us, and he says, whosoever. Wow. To me, what God does, he's placing the ball in our courts. Whosoever, whoever let him come. Do I believe in man's responsibility this morning of salvation? Yes, I do. Can man reject God? Yes, he can. Does man have a choice? Of course he does. Do I believe in God's calling and sovereignty and salvation? Of course I do. He says in Ephesians chapter 2, even faith is a gift of God. Now, how exactly does that work? It's too wonderful for me. And it's too wonderful for you. All I know, he's a just God. And in the process of time, when the Lord was calling and the Lord was drawing I tell you, he drafted me into the kingdom. And truly, he drafted you guys too. I didn't enlist. He drafted me. And I'm glad he did. And it's a process. And he opens our hearts to the gospel just like he did Lydia. In Acts chapter 16, Paul says this. Now, a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshiped God. Now, that's kind of putting a horse before the cart. If you really look at that, what he just said, she's not saved. Just like when I read this book, they weren't saved and they were giving their lives for salvation. God has straightened it all out in the end. But this scripture says right here, and what I just read you, it says she worshiped God. 
God knew her heart at that time. And then it says, the Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul, and he brought her on into the kingdom. I can't describe all of the dynamics, but I know God is sovereign, and yet we have a free will. And this is right after chapter 9 when he talks of election. Verse 14, he says, Paul says, after he said all that, he says, how then shall they call on him who they have not believed? This is a great challenge for all of us this morning who has a burden for the lost. And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher, someone proclaiming. And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. If we are all, and I won't say if, I will say since, if we're believers, since we are all able ministers of the gospel, we need to understand the perimeters, the parameters of the ministry that God has given to us this morning. The problem is we view God's calling to ministry the same way we view everything else. And what I mean by this is we appraise our ministry or what we're doing to what others say or to other ministries or through the media, any of those things. How big of a church do you go to? Is it a cool church? Now, our church should be cool because David Hickey is here. I know you guys thought I was going to say because I'm here, but I'm going to put it on David Hickey because David Hickey is here. It's not about being cool. The issue to any ministry is are you, am I faithful? That's all God cares about. I guarantee that if some grandmother out there who prays for her grandkids, that they are more, that she is more faithful than I am. I guarantee you there's some grandma out there that was more faithful once again praying for her grandkids than Billy Graham was. And you know what his ministry was. So it doesn't, don't get caught up on the size of a ministry. But are you faithful? That's all God wants to know. Are you faithful? What has God called you to this morning? Where has he sent you to? It doesn't matter the age whether you're 90 or nine, if you're a believer and you're still on this earth, God wants you serving. That's what the scripture says. Leonard Ravenhill, when he was 90 years of age, they, they brought him up and they said, hey, would you share with these young ministers? Would you share with ministry teams? And this is what he said. He said, he got up in front of them and he said, do one thing, teach the word, teach the word. 
And then he said this. He said, because if they had been doing that in Europe and the United States, we would not be having the problems we are having now. We've forsaken the word of God. Speak where you've been sent. Share the gospel in the environment God has placed you in. Remember when James, he writes to the church, he calls them the diaspora, the seed sown throughout the Roman Empire. They were driven out from Jerusalem, remember, on the day of Pentecost. They would have never left. So God says, I've got I've to stir this pot up. So when persecution came, they dispersed. 10 years, 20 years later, as the apostle Paul and his ministry, his missionary crew would go out, he would see little churches planted that God had dispersed them. And Paul would go in and share the living Christ in each one of those seeds are here this morning if you are a believer, whether that's at work, whether that's at school, whatever you're doing, the aim is when you get that opportunity, will you open your mouth and share Christ? That's the only reason we're here. If, you're, if we're believers, that's the only reason we are here. It's not about what I want to do. It's about what God has in store for me to do. And there's no retirement I can find. I tell my wife that all the time. There's no retirement I can find in the scriptures. No, no, no. We serve the Lord. That's what it's about. And that's what Paul is wanting us to understand here. He says, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace who bring glad tidings of good thing. Paul quotes from Isaiah 52, 7. This is what it says there. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who proclaims peace, who brings glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Now, in the context of what Isaiah is saying, they're looking for deliverance at this time because they're in Babylon. And Isaiah is saying, don't worry about it. Someone is going to bring you good news one day that you're going to be delivered from Babylonian captivity. So they would look to that. When is that person coming? When are we going to hear this good news? They were saying that in Babylonian captivity. The Jew was saying that in Egypt. They were saying that in Rome. But there's a greater bondage to humanity. And that's the bondage of sin. SpongeBob is not going to get us out of that bondage. The Atlanta Falcons are not going to get us out of that bondage, Victor. Even Alabama's not going to get me out of that bondage. What gets me out of that bondage is the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. If I'm proclaiming anything else, that's not sufficient. How are you doing today? How, how, how's your week been? You need something to eat? Those things are good and well. But until I get down to the brass tacks, or do you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? I've did them no good. I've did them no good. That's what he's saying here. 
we must proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says, how shall they preach unless they are sent? How shall they hear without a preacher, someone to proclaim? How beautiful is the messenger who comes with the gospel, who publishes the message of peace instead of critical race theory. That one race or ethnic group can be innately prejudiced. That's foolishness. We're all sinners. Being prejudiced is a learned behavior. I've seen little black kids, little Asian kids, little white kids, little Hispanic kids playing all together at one years of age and all the way up until somebody has taught them something different. That's learned behavior. They need the gospel. We all need the gospel. Verse 16, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. It's been published. They've heard. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? That's an amazing quote. That's from Isaiah 53. We all know what Isaiah 53 speaks of. The suffering Messiah pictured through all of that chapter. The Jews won't even let that chapter be read in the synagogues. And if you ask them about it, they say they're they're speaking about the, 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 the nation, the Jewish nation that's been suffering. But yet they won't let that be spoken of in the synagogues. How sad they are blinded. He says, but they have not all obeyed the good news. Lord, who has believed our report? Verse 17. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, the rhema word. And what Paul means by that rhema word is, remember when Jesus Christ was taken out into the wilderness And Satan says, okay, since you're hungry, turn these stones to bread. And Jesus comes back with, man shall live not by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. The Logos is fine, and we should read it. But we have to be able to bring whatever is happening in our situation, in our circumstance, we need to allow the word of God to bring that word to us. And we need to know that word in context. That's what Jesus said, and that's what he means by that. We need to know the word of God. But I say, verse 18, have they not heard? Yes, indeed, their sound has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. That's Psalms 19, 4. But I say, did Israel not know? Verse 19, first Moses says, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. Way back in the Pentateuch, the Lord had a heart for the Gentiles. Verse 20, but Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did did not ask for me. Notice this, Paul says in verse 18, I say, He says in verse 19, I say. He says in verse 20, Isaiah says. But when he looks to verse 20, God makes it no doubt. He says, but Yahweh says. There's no doubt who's speaking and there's no doubt who he's speaking to. He says this, Jewish nation, you can't say, 
I did not call you. He says, all day long, I have stretched out my hand to a disobedient and contrary people. The worship team can come up. That's why I read you a portion of this book. That's why it's all the way in this book. I was talking to Bob this morning about how sad it is that the Jews in general are blinded of the gospel. But God knows what he's doing because we'll find out in chapter 11, because of their blindness, he's allowed the Gentiles to come in. Are we just going to, okay, we're in, no big problem. We need to be praying for Israel. We need to be praying for the Jewish people. We need to be praying, Lord, would you move on their hearts to come to see Messiah Jesus to who he is? He's the God man. He's the savior of all men. But Paul has good news. In chapter 10, verse one, he says, I say then, has God cast away his people? He ends up, God forbid, and we'll finish that next week. I want us to remember that faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. I want us to remember that that right there could not even be possible if the Lord was not calling and drawing you to salvation. I want us to understand that God picked everyone in here that's believers. He called you. He drew you. He saved you. But here's the big one. What are we going to do with that? What are we going to do with that? Are we just going to sit on our hands? When I find the time, I'll minister because we're all able ministers of the New Testament. That's what the Holy Spirit says. Will we do that? Will we do that for the glory of God? I have no greater joy than yesterday being up here putting those boxes together. We worked. <laughs> it wasn't just playing around. Bob Bowman had us moving. He had us moving. And what did I see? Smiles on faces, laughing, having a good time. And I said, this is what serving the Lord is. Not only there, Rick and his group comes in, they help, they go out and minister, do all those things. We're not the only one. We have people in here over ministries. But what I'm saying, that's what we're called to do. And if we wait until there's a convenient time, oh, I found something. Thank you, Lord. I'm rem I remember when Paul, was preaching, telling his testimony to Agrippa and Felix. Remember what he said after he had preached. First, they said he was a madman. And then he said, Paul, you've lost your mind. I think it was Felix said, I'll wait to a convenient time and hear from you again. There may have never been a convenient time. But if we're believers, there's a convenient time for us to serve for us to do things while we can. And that's what I want you to pray about. If it's nothing but praying, you can be at home and pray. Pray for 
the sick and the shut-in and the hurting here. Pray for those who need jobs. Pray for, pray for me, and I'll pray for you. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. I'm so thankful that you would call someone like me to your kingdom. I'm so thankful that you would wrestle with someone like me to come into your kingdom. Lord, I'm filthy rags made clean by the grace of God. And Lord, there's something you want me to do. And Lord, I pray that I will do everything that you've called me to do. And that's something you want everyone here that is a believer to do. We're all able ministers of the gospel of the New Testament. So, Father, I pray that you would speak to hearts. First, we want to say thank you for saving us. Then we want to say, Lord, if there's anything you want me to do, make it clear. Reveal your will to me and give us obedient hearts, Father. Lord, I pray for those that are sick, that you would stop by and touch and bring relief. If you do not heal, would you please bring relief? Would you please bring quality of life? Give us grace to handle whatever you allow to come our way, Father. Lord, we just want to be more and more like you. We say that with our lips, but does it register to our hearts? That's what I want for all of it, that it would register to our hearts, that we would be a people that love the brethren and that we love the lost and that we share when we get opportunities to do those things, Lord. And then when one comes to the Lord, Lord, we'll be sure to give you the praise, the glory, and the honor. I thank you for what you're doing here. I thank you for what you're going to do. I thank you for the believers here, Lord. And I ask all of these things through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, to the Father God. Amen. Let's stand and close with.